Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder. I'm a managing director at B. Riley Financial, and I'm also the author of the new ROI, Return on Individuals. This is the show that digs deeper to understand what matters most in business. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about how to stay out of trouble with the IRS. And I'm pleased to welcome Phil Carter, who's a managing partner in the Philadelphia office of Chamberlain Herdlicka. Phil, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Hi, Dave. Very nice to be here. Thanks. That's uh, my pleasure. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are. So I'm, I'm a tax lawyer practicing in Philadelphia. Uh, it's funny we use the term practicing in law. Uh, I've been uh, an attorney for close to 40 years now, but they say we're still quote unquote practicing. Uh, my practice is, I would describe it colloquially as uh, really consisting of two parts. Uh, the part that's baked, which is the back end or so-called audit and controversy part of the practice where everything that has transpired already now has to be unwound, dissected, analyzed, and hopefully a taxpayers come out of that uh, uh, hole. Uh, and then there is the part that is still baking, which is the uh, uh, transactional work that I do. And I try to bring to that my experience on the controversy and litigation side to help taxpayers who are in audits uh, or worse uh, to come out of those intact. It's funny you said about practicing. I think my doctors are still practicing too, so I, I get a little <laughs> exactly. worried about that. Uh, I'm going to try and cover a lot of ground here, Phil. So uh, strap in. Here we go. I want to start with talking about how to stay out of trouble, how to avoid the audit. And when we're talking about the world of transactions, I, my instinct is we can probably avoid a lot of the problems in structuring something properly. Is that reasonable? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and and one of the reasons why this can be so complicated is because this is a substantive area of the law, uh, the tax law. Uh, it, it is extremely complicated. And one of the reasons why is because it's always changing. Uh, in the years that I practiced, there were probably more than two dozen major tax acts. Uh, they colloquially come up with a variety of uh, acronyms to describe them, ERDA, TEFRA, TCJA. Uh, but what they are is a reflection of uh, political priorities, social priorities, economic priorities, all of which are intended to incentivize or disincentivize behavior. You think, for example, about the uh, constantly changing tax rates, both for corporate taxpayers and for individual taxpayers. And that has a significant effect on motivating behavior. So you have a situation, a, a, um, you have a, um, uh, an area of law that is complicated, that is consistently changing, uh, and yet it is based on uh, what is supposed to be a voluntary compliance system. Uh, and uh, even though it is technically a, a voluntary compliance, the problem is that you have to understand what it is that you need to report. And while there are areas of law that are clear, tax law that are clear, there are many other areas that are, uh, let's just say, gray. That provides opportunity, but it also provides risk. Uh, and uh, the one thing uh, I would say that has been true over the course of my career is that uh, although we hear uh, much to be made about the concept of tax simplification, the one immutable principle is that uh, the more complex and convoluted the tax law becomes every time they try to claim that it's uh, the goal is to simplify. <laughs> and as an example, when I got out of uh, law school, the tax code was about an inch thick, my tax code that's sitting on my desk. Uh, 
Uh, and I still have that old one from 1982, just as a reminder of how things have evolved over the years. Now it's two volumes. It's over 4,000 pages long. So you can really give uh, War and Peace a run for its money. And um, uh, it just continues to grow. When you throw in the number of treasury regulations that are promulgated to help interpret the law, we're talking about literally tens of thousands of uh, pages. And, and, and another problem is that technology is consist consistently outpacing uh, the tax law. And so the tax law is always trying to catch up. I'll give you a, a good apropos example in today's world, and that is in the world of cryptocurrency, which is largely an unregulated environment whose financial impact is growing exponentially. And the IRS is trying to get a handle on it and, and catching up and trying to promulgate regulations to impose, at least in its own uh, definition, some order on the tax code, but excuse me, on that a particular area. But it's, it's always a battle. Um, taxpayers are encumbered by the complexity of the law and the fact that it's always changing. The IRS, in turn, is encumbered by uh, uh, really very limited resources. Uh, anyone who's tried to call an IRS helpline waits for two hours and then gets disconnected can certainly attest to that. And it's also encumbered by a brain drain uh, from a lot of retirements and the hiring of new and, and far less experienced people. But anyway, to, to, to respond to your question, uh, how does one inoculate oneself from an audit? The first thing uh, it would help to know would be how are returns selected for an audit? Now about, in today's world, about 95% of the 150 million or so returns that are filed every year are filed electronically. There are some people that still file in paper, but largely they're electronic filings. And needless to say, even the ones that come in paper get fed into a computer and are scored uh, with an algorithm that is intended to kind of try to pick out uh, those returns that require a closer inspection. And one of the first things to know is what are the areas of particular interest where that's more likely to happen? Because we all know that uh, the so-called audit lottery, uh, the percentage of returns overall that, is, that are subject to audit is actually very low hovering right now around one to one and a half percent. But if you are a taxpayer who reports certain types of uh, uh, transactions or, uh, or income or uh, take certain types of expenses, that risk grows and can grow exponentially. So you might ask, what are the types of, uh, of uh, issues that are more likely to flag uh, an audit? And just to run off uh, a far from complete list, uh, we can start with examination priorities. For example, I mentioned crypto. Uh, offshore transactions are always something that attract a greater degree of interest. Uh, a participation in what are known as tax advantage transactions. If you have a small business or a Schedule C business, that is always something that gets a closer look, or at least uh, often gets a closer look. Uh, and in that regard, it's very important for people who are trying to inoculate themselves from an audit to make sure that they keep excellent records and in particular to segregate uh, business records from personal records. And at least with smaller clients, that's one of the biggest problems one finds, whether it's a commingling of accounts, uh, a use of a credit card for both business and personal. These are the types of, uh, of errors that are really easy to collect with a little uh, to correct with a little bit of discipline. Uh, some other areas are uh, taxpayer disclosures. There are some times where a taxpayer 
to avoid potential tax penalties will need to make a disclosure uh, on their tax return. It's like an explanatory sheet explaining a particular transaction. Uh, information mismanaging, for example, if you uh, don't report income from a 1099 where the payor, excuse me, the payor has filed that 1099, that's another example. Uh, issues that are spanning multiple years uh, can be another area that attracts interest. And then, of course, there are informants, an employee of a business or even a, a spouse or ex-spouse uh, sometimes uh, can precipitate a closer look that leads to an audit. Great dissertation anyway, there, Phil. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. Now, I was going to say you've shared a lot of great information with us so far. Uh, if folks are watching or listening and, and they want to get in contact with you, Phil, how can they do that? Well, probably the easiest way to find me is to just look up my name, Phil Carter. That's with a K. As a matter of fact, I spent my whole life because of the spelling referring to myself as Phil Carter with a K, but it's K-A-R-T-E-R. -E and just put Phil Carter tax. But my email address is pcarter, P-K-A-R-T-E-R -E at chamberlainlaw.com. Awesome. Phil, we're going to take a quick commercial break here. You sit tight. Don't go anywhere. Are you watching and listening? We'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break. You bet. I feel bad for kicking your seat on purpose. I'm sorry for mansplaining. That's when a man... I know what it is. We should have just told you it's a boy. <laughs> I wish you didn't have to hear all that. Sorry I called you Karen. That's my name. Sorry your name is Karen. I promise I will not eat any more of your friends. Really? Okay, it might happen one more time. Hi everyone, my name is Milton Corsi. I'm here with my co-host, Mark Iorio. Welcome to Team Talk. Team Talk's all about bringing teams together, bringing organizations together, bringing a diverse group of people together to make the organization a better, more successful organization. Listening to every single voice in the organization to make it better. Yeah, our guests are gonna include people from industry, people from sports and other walks of life. They're going to talk to us about their specific journeys to team success. Tune in on Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. and then again on Thursday evening at 5 p.m. to watch Milton and I talk about Team Talk. We're looking forward to having you join us. And welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder. And today we're talking about how to stay out of trouble with the IRS with Phil Carter, who's managing partner in Philadelphia of the law firm Chamberlain Herdlicka. Phil, welcome back to the second round here. Yeah. I want to start the second segment by, by giving you an opportunity to maybe do a little humble brag thing and doing my homework on you. Uh, I came to understand that you're recognized as a national authority in tax controversy and litigation by several organizations, and you were also named Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers in America not too long ago. Um, give you a chance to talk about that. How does it feel to be recognized by your peers in your profession? Uh, obviously, it's an honor to have uh, uh, anyone recognize after this many years that you are uh, capable of providing uh, quality service to your clients. Uh, truthfully, though, um, having the clients come back and tell you that they were very happy with the representation is, uh, is even more satisfying than that. Ultimately, it's the representation of the clients that, uh, that counts in the end. A humble guy to the end. 
Thank you. Uh, so we talked a lot about in the first segment about how to try to avoid the problems. Now I want to talk a little bit about what happens if you're in that uh-oh moment where now you've got a matter in front of the IRS. Talk a little bit about, a little bit about the audit defense process. Sure. Well, well, the first thing you have to understand is that uh, not every dispute is resolved in audit, uh, but it's certainly a lot more uh, cost-effective, efficient uh, to be able to resolve whatever you can in an audit. And as I said, a lot of that will depend upon how you prepare in the event you are audited with good record, record keeping. Uh, a general principle of the tax law is that it's the taxpayer's burden of proof to be able to establish that they're entitled to the tra- uh, tax treatment that they claimed on the return. So it's really, uh, as I said, you really go in with a huge advantage if you have uh, organized your uh, records uh, in a manner to support your position. Uh, and it's also important to try to prevent an issue on the return from becoming an issue in audit. And one of the ways you can do that is to, uh, when a question is posed to you by an IRS examiner, to provide a clear and convincing answer. So as I said, good documentation, good organization is really uh, is really key. It's also important to kind of decide what issues are, are the really important ones uh, and those that are perhaps best to resolve or even concede. There's a lot of horse trading in an audit where, there's a mul- where there are multiple issues uh, at stake here. Um, the ones that count are the ones obviously that either have a continuing impact or large dollar amounts, things of that nature. Uh, there's also uh, a principle in defending an audit that you should really try to learn as much as you can while they are trying to learn from you. For example, what are they, inter- what are they interested in? Uh, are there areas that you perhaps are concerned about that don't appear to be attracting any attention on their part? So what you need to do is you uh, try to learn as much as you disclose, uh, but you have to be always uh, alert to uh, uh, try to ascertain whether there's anything that from the IRS uh, auditor's perspective might be construed as a misrepresentation or even perhaps fraud. And there are certain circumstances, and obviously we hope that there are many people in this position, but there are circumstances where uh, there is always the potential of a criminal referral. And there are indicators in an examination uh, that may tip you off or tip the attorney representing you off uh, or the representative who is uh, handling the tax audit uh, that this, this might be an issue, such as a, height, a heightened interest in a particular type of transaction, Uh, questions on intent and state of mind, because the essence of a criminal tax charge often uh, has to do with intent um, and net worth analysis. Uh, And then here's one that most people don't think of is that the audit goes cold for a period of time. You get an audit notice, they start investigating, they start asking questions, and then six months, you don't hear anything. That may be because they are considering the information that they have for a potential criminal referral. Um, What I can say in terms of handling the audit, it's handled in a lot of ways uh, by a lot of different people. It really depends on what the issues are. It can be handled by the return preparer, I would say, in a simple case where it's just clarifying information or providing substantiation. That may be perfectly fine. Uh, Another alternative is to get an accountant in there who may specialize in in, uh, tax controversy. Uh, It is important the more complex the issues are to understand the administrative process. There are a lot of complicated procedures that one has to navigate through. Uh, As I said, if there's anything remotely appearing to be uh, attracting interest as a criminal referral, 
but even otherwise on a particularly a complex issue that may not be involved in the audit level. Uh, it's often uh, sensible and prudent to bring in an experienced tax uh, attorney. Uh, one of the things attorneys can do, obviously, that uh, most accountants will, will, will not do, and in, in many cases can't do, is uh, they can represent you in proceedings beyond the administrative process, uh, particularly should you determine uh, that you need to litigate a particular issue. Uh, sometimes there's a concern that if an attorney gets into the picture, it may elevate the IRS's interest. Why is an attorney involved? There must be something more where there's smoke is fire, that type of thing. I haven't found that to be the case. I mean, people respect the reasons why somebody is trying to go out and get good representation. But there are some instances from a tactical standpoint where the accountant may be the front person and the attorney is acting behind the scenes and advising. Because one of the things you always have to do is you have to think strategically about where an issue is going to go. If you think it's unlikely to be resolved, it's an issue, for example, where the IRS has um, made it clear that they have a position contrary to the one you've taken on a tax return, and you think it's likely to be uh, litigated or at least uh, elevated above the exam level, then you might react differently in terms of the information you're willing to provide. So there is a bit of a chess game going on in many audits. In others, they should be very straightforward. But I think the one principle that I try to keep in mind always is it doesn't pay to win the battle and lose the war, which is to say for taxpayers as compared to the government, it's not always about being right. It's about how, how you can extricate yourself from a situation as uh, economically sensibly as possible. Yeah, when you talk about playing that chess game, and it's certainly complicated, uh, good idea to know who your opponent is. And there, there's a, a people element there where You've got different agents, and I know a lot of times in the business world, what happens on the other end of a transaction could largely be driven by the mood of that individual that day. Did they get into a fight with their, their significant other that morning when they left the house? Did they get into an accident? Talk about the, the people component when you're involved in an IRS matter. Sure. Well, you know, I worked for the Justice Department Tax Division for six years, representing the government in cases against taxpayers. So I like to say I came out of it with a very balanced view. And one of the things I learned, and this may be contrary to popular belief, is that uh, there are many, many quality uh, IRS employees uh, trying hard to uh, work together with a taxpayer or their representative to resolve an issue. Uh, and I also follow the general principle, uh, largely because it is more advantageous to the client in terms of expense and, and outcome, is that you can attract more flies with uh, honey than with vinegar. Now, that's not to say that uh, you, you, you always roll over when there's a request that you determine is unreasonable or is going to be disadvantageous to your client. I mean, there are times when you have to push back. Uh, but you can even do that in a, uh, in a respectful way. I mean, just as you said, you have to understand that uh, these are people too. They have jobs, they have families, they have stress. Uh, and if you come into it with the approach that let's work together to try to resolve this if we can, uh, and maybe we'll have to agree to disagree, but uh, keep it civil, uh, keep it polite, try to be cooperative where you can be, push back where you need to, uh, the likelihood is that the audit is going to be uh, smoother. Uh, that said, there are those instances where people wake up on the wrong side of the bed and there's not a whole lot you can do. Uh, those are the circumstances where the matter tends to get elevated either to this, their supervisor level or if you can't resolve in the exam level, you take another crack of it at it uh, in an IRS appeals proceeding and hopefully resolve it there. And then, of course, if you can't, then that's a matter if it's worth uh, while economically, 
that you'll probably want to pursue in litigation. Thanks, Phil. For those who are watching and listening, uh, if they need to work with you, want to work with you, want to pick your brain, how can they connect with you? Sure. As I said, uh, you can find me on the Chamberlain Law website. It's C H A M B E R L A I N Law. Com. My name is Phil Carter, K-A-R-T-E-R. My email is pcarter at chamberlainlaw.com. Uh, I work with clients ranging from large public companies to uh, small businesses and individuals, some well-known, some obviously not known at all. Uh, it's really the variety of the practice and the clients that makes the, uh, the job so rewarding. Yep. And I've had the pleasure of working with Phil on a couple of things, uh, seeing how he operates firsthand, uh, top-notch stuff. Definitely give him a call. That's Phil Carter with a K. Phil, we've got about three minutes to go here, but I wanted to sneak in one last question. Maybe you can give the audience a little bit of advice as to some of the other hot-button issues besides crypto that may be uh, on the IRS radar. Well, I would say for the large part of my career, and it certainly is the case now, the um, IRS and taxpayers have battled over uh, what is motivating a particular transaction. Uh, it's the conundrum of a, a tussle between whether a transaction was entered into for business purpose or whether it was tax motivated. And ironically, a lot, there, uh, ironically enough, there is uh, much in the tax code that's entirely tax motivated. The reasons why taxpayers undertake certain types of transactions, for example, the home mortgage interest deduction uh is obviously something there's you want to buy a home but there's no business purpose to that uh, low-income housing is another area uh, that is intended to affect social policy uh, and one of the reasons or for example historic credit uh, rehabilitation these are all tax incentives that motivate taxpayers to invest in things that congress uh, and the government has felt to be worthwhile but there is this ongoing tussle between the IRS and taxpayers about whether a business purpose is needed for a transaction or at least is the predominant purpose. And the IRS has become increasingly aggressive uh, with this issue to the point where what used to be a judicial doctrine known as the economic substance doctrine is now actually codified in the Internal Revenue Code. And I'm finding more and more recently that the IRS throws out the lack of economic substance argument uh, over and over again, uh, the consequences of which from the IRS's standpoint is threatening uh, some significant tax penalties, which can be as high as 40%. So whether it's a club to try to uh, uh, bring taxpayers into line or submission, uh, one simply has to break down whether, first of all, the government's position is legally sound and whether the facts support their position. But as a general principle, and as I said, going back to the issue of keeping good records, it's always important to document the reasons, the business reasons why you're undertaking a transaction uh, and that those business reasons are consistent with um, uh, issues that will be helpful to your business. Great. Phil, I appreciate you joining us today on Behind the Numbers. I hope you had fun today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today. It's my pleasure. We've been talking with Phil Carter with a K, the managing partner at Chamberlain Herlicka's Philadelphia office, and we learned a lot about how to stay out of trouble with the IRS. Again, my name is Dave Bookbinder, and I'm the one that my clients turn to when they want to know what their most important assets are worth. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to have a conversation. And as always, thank you for watching and listening. We can't do this without you. Uh, please hit the subscribe button, leave a review. Tell your friends about Behind the Numbers. Until next time, take care, everybody. We'll see you on Behind the Numbers.